today's reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. As he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there, some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does the babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took, took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, maybe Maybe you know what this new reading is that you are presenting. For you, you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, that what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who, who live there would spend those, their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects in your worship, of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you, you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed every, anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our, your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being in, is the God, is the gold or silver or stone, and an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went, went out from their midst, but some, some men joined him and believed, among, the, among whom also were Dionysius and Dionysius, the Aeropagus, and the woman named Demeris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Acts 17, and let's pray as we look at God's Word. Lord, thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have shown the light of your truth in the face of your Son. You've given us your Word written that points us to the living word, Jesus. May we see him this morning. Amen. Well, one of the frequent criticisms that people outside of the church will make, and, and one of the honest questions that often young people in the church wrestle with, is whether the church is still relevant today. In a Barna poll, recent Barna poll, only 30% of people in, not involved in church between the ages of 16 to 29, only 30% agreed that Christianity is even just somewhat relevant to their lives. 72% agreed that it is out of touch with reality. 78% that it is old-fashioned, and 68% that it is boring. And of course, uh, the statistics dealing with attendance and affiliation confirm that picture. Most denominations in America are declining today. More and more people identify themselves as nuns, which is not the, the Catholic sister, but N-O-N-E, None, as in no religious affiliation at all. And somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 churches die every year in America. You know, the evidence, some of the most striking and, and sometimes troubling evidence of that is you know, the, the trend of turning vacant church buildings into designer homes and condos. I mean, there's barely a neighborhood in Boston where you can't find something like that. And so it's an honest question. It's an honest question. Is there any true or lasting relevance to the church today? Are we wasting our time here this morning when we could be out enjoying this beautiful weather or sleeping in? And are we wasting our breath in our effort to tell others about Christ. 
Is it true, as progressives tell us today, that for the church to remain relevant, it must catch up with the times, wake up to the realization that, that people don't believe those things anymore? They're not interested in what traditional Christianity has to offer. And so if you want to stay relevant in the market, you've got to adjust your product to what people are actually buying. Give them the God they're looking for, what they like to think of God as. Help them pursue their dreams and follow their heart. How to live your best life now, to you know, wash your face, stop apologizing and go conquer the world. Is that the way we stay relevant? And we have to wrestle with those questions honestly. There's no fear in wrestling with that question, and I think that our passage this morning helps us do that. Because what we're going to see as the Apostle Paul brings the gospel to a people who are not looking for Israel's God, They're not Jews. They're not God-fearing Gentiles, as we've encountered several places in the book. They're pagan idolaters. They're Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. They are the intellectual elites of the ancient world, people for whom news of Israel's God is little more than a curiosity. In other words, these are people who are not shopping for Jesus. He's not on their list. What we're going to see in Paul's engagement with them, is that the church is most relevant to the world when we proclaim what the world needs most but cannot find anywhere else. True knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the story itself in Acts 17, it's part of Paul's second missionary journey. We've been working our way through selections in the book of Acts and uh, this is part of Paul's second journey, and as was his habit, he, he enters into a new town, and he first goes to the synagogue and preaches the gospel, and then eventually uh, preaches among the Gentiles, the non-Jews as well. And he's been doing this so far, but at the beginning of chapter 7, as he's preaching in the city of Thessalonica, uh, some of the Jewish leaders decided to try and, and silence him. So they, they stirred up trouble, they incited violence to basically try and run Paul out of town. And they were effective. He moved on and, and then moved to the city of Berea, where he again begins preaching the gospel. But some of the Jews from Thessalonica followed him there and continued their little rabble-rousing to try and stir up trouble, such that the, the believers in Berea end up sending Paul out pretty quickly and by himself, kind of sneaking him out of the city leaving behind his traveling buddies, Timothy and Silas. And and that brings Paul to Athens by himself. Like The Berean believers get him there, and now he's in this city, uh, an unplanned stop on his journey, while he's now waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up, and he's got a little time on his hands. And so as he's touring around, he's, he's you know, in this city known for its academic and philosophical elitism, it's one of the most famous ancient cities in the world. But as Paul takes the city in, it's not the history or the philosophy that captures his attention. It's the rampant idolatry 
That's what he notices. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And you know what we think of today as breathtaking architectural marvels and incredible works of art, those were images of pagan deities and temples to them. Like it's just history and art to us. It was worship for the ancient world. The city was full of false worship to false gods, which both robs God of his true glory and condemns idolaters to eternal death. And so Paul sees this and he's moved by it. He's provoked in his spirit. It stirs his passion. And so Paul does what Paul does. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. But in Athens, it's, it's not the synagogue where his message gets traction. Rather, it's the marketplace. It's the marketplace, which is what gives us this window into, you know, how relevant is the church and its message when people aren't shopping for Jesus anymore or never were. And so we get this window into the true and lasting relevance of the church and its gospel. And there are three observations that I want to make from this passage, and then three applications for us today with respect to the relevance of the church. So the first observation, number one, everyone is religious. Everyone is religious. Verse 18, Paul is reasoning in the marketplace. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's what we're told. And, and that preaching captures the attention of some of the philosophical elites and, and the Epicureans and the Stoics. And, and that lands him an invitation to address the most, one of the most famous forums in the ancient world, the Areopagus, or, or also known as Mars Hill. That invitation is driven by curiosity. Uh, it's not really that they wanted what Paul was selling. The Epicureans considered gods to be so remote as to take no interest in and have no influence on human affairs. Uh, the world was due to chance. It was a random course of atoms, and, and there would be no survival of death and no judgment. And so human beings, you know, basically should have as much pleasure as possible and avoid pain at all costs. That was the Epicurean philosophy. It's not exactly a convergence with Christianity. Meanwhile, the Stoics acknowledged some supreme God, but in a pantheistic way, confusing him with a world soul. And, and so the world was determined by fate. Human beings must pursue their duty, resign themselves to live in harmony with, with nature and reason, however painful that might be, and, and kind of develop their own self-sufficiency. Grin and bear it, gut it out. Again, not exactly Christianity. But they were intrigued by this new teaching. In fact, you know, verse 21 tells us that's about all they spent their time doing, Right? Uh, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except 
telling or hearing something new. It's driven by curiosity. But Paul gets this invitation to the Areopagus, and, and you know, for what might be comparable to a guest lecture at a university, that's how you might think of, of what's happening here, or even maybe an academic grilling of some sort. And notice how he begins his speech in verse 22. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Paul starts by drawing attention to the widespread religious interest of the Athenians. It is evident everywhere. Uh, And he picks this as a starting point, not in order to compliment them for it, as though there's some intrinsic value in being religious, even if that's directed toward a false god. No, he acknowledges their religious interest because he's about to correct it, and because it gives him a common point of reference with his audience, a common starting point from which to dialogue. Again, Christianity doesn't exactly have a lot in common with Stoicism or, or Epicureanism, and, and he can't exactly start in the Hebrew Scriptures, which is what he would do in the synagogue, because, you know, the, the, these philosophers and such, his audience neither knows of nor cares about Israel's Scripture. Uh, it means nothing to them. But an interest in the divine... There is a common point of reference. And so that's where Paul starts with their religious interest. And the reality is, whether people want to admit it or not, the same is true today. Everybody is religious. From the Buddhist monk to the secular humanist. From the New Ager to the most ardent atheist. Everyone is religious. Everyone is looking for God. Uh, We obviously don't frame it that way. No atheist would consider themselves religious. But, But the reality is that whatever you look for identity in, whatever, wherever you place your security, whatever you seek to give you significance and meaning or satisfaction in life, That is your God, whether you call it such or not. And you can tell by looking at how people treat their God. It's what you devote yourself to. It's what you tell others about. It's what you make sacrifices for. It's what you defend and advocate for. As humans made in the image of God... We can't help but be religious beings built with an innate sense of the divine. As Augustine famously said of God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There's something that drives us toward God in all of our passions and our pursuits, even if we're not sure that that's what we're looking for. Or another quote that's often attributed to G.K. Chesterton, but it actually originates from a novel by Bruce Marshall. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel 
is unconsciously looking for God. That's what he's trying to satisfy. And that is true for all of us. And even the most elite atheists can't fully escape that. It's interesting. There's a chapter in Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, where he kind of traces this phenomenon that, that these elite atheists, at the end of the day, can't fully escape the idea of God. They just can't completely shake themselves of what they know is not true. But as religious as humans are, we're all religious, everyone's religious, but as religious as we are, what we worship is often self-made. It's often self-made, whether images of, of pagan deities crafted in the ancient world or in other foreign contexts today, or idols of the heart. Things like money or sex or power or fame. We invest our religious desires in gods of our own making, resulting in a distortion of the true God. And that's what Paul focuses on next. Our second observation, that man-made religion distorts God. So everybody's religious. Second, man-made religion distorts God. There is a, a beer in Japan called Kirin, and the logo on the can is a picture of a dragon. But the word Kirin, and, and you can have Ife correct me if I get this wrong, uh, the word Kirin actually means giraffe. So it's giraffe beer with a logo that has a dragon. The story goes that uh, when travelers returned from their adventures abroad and described this long-necked creature they saw in Africa, what people pictured was a dragon, hence what eventually became the logo for the beer. Without seeing giraffes for themselves, their effort to reconstruct this thing they had heard a rumor of ended up with a distortion. And it ended, it ended up with a distortion. And the same thing happens with man-made religion. It distorts the true God. We have this sense of the divine. We've maybe heard a rumor of him. There's this instinct that there's something greater than us, but because of the limits of our humanity and because of the fallenness of sin and its effects on our, our minds and our ability to see and understand God, we end up, uh, we, we just can't find or figure him out on our own. So we end up making stuff up. We create God in our own image or in the image of some other creature. But God is not whoever or whatever we want him to be. He is who he is. He is who he is, who, and specifically, who he has revealed himself to be in his word and ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ. And he sends his church into the world to bear witness about his true identity, to make the unseen God known. Look again at verse 23. When Paul makes reference to the altar to an unknown God, he's not complimenting their religious uh, diversity or ingenuity. 
making sure all the bases are covered. In case there's some God out there we don't know about, we're going to make an altar to him too. We're covered. He's not complimenting that. He's using that as an opportunity to expose their ignorance. What you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Which is a pretty bold move when you're standing among the academic elite of the ancient world. Calling out their ignorance? That's what he does. Because man-made religion distorts God. So Paul offers a passionate correction. First, he explains the true nature of God in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Man-made religion gets it backwards. It turns it upside down. We make God in our image and, and, and uh, treat him as though he's dependent on us, which ultimately is so we can control him and get him to do what we want him to do. That's how idolatry and paganism works. But God is the creator. He is eternally self-existing and self-sufficient. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. There's a huge difference. The sovereign king, the source and sustainer of all of life, that is God's true nature. And then in, in verses 26 to 28, Paul clarifies God's desire relative to humanity, namely that, that we would know and worship him as he truly is. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So God's not regional and territorial. He is cosmic and universal. He's sovereign over all of human history. And he made, relation, he made humans for relationship with him. He's not distant and uninterested, as the Epicureans thought, or fatalistic and impersonal as the Stoics thought, and neither is he whatever we want him to be today or like to think of him as. He is who he is and who he, who he has revealed himself to be in Jesus. And he made us to know him as he is and to enjoy him forever. In fact, it, as Paul points out, citing uh, their own poets, to make his point, he's not actually that far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Paul, first Paul gets his audience. Again, he, he knows that at, his, at this point in the conversation, the Hebrew scriptures don't carry any authority for his people. And so, so he uses their authors to make the same point Genesis 1 makes, that we are made in the image of God. Eventually, we can assume he's going to bring them to the Scriptures because that's what he always does. But they don't have a concept yet, and so he's, he's building that, that. That when we think of God and we think of our relationship with him, to be in his image is to be made for relationship. He's not that far. 
He's holy and above us, but he wants us to be with him. Which means that he cannot stand back and allow his creatures, his children, to continue in ignorance when they were made for intimacy with him. An intimate relationship that that we twist and squander and seek to exploit for our gain. And so that brings us to the third observation, that God will judge our false worship. He will judge our false worship. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of, of the divine being that he's like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He will make all things right. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul returns to where he began, with the Athenians' ignorance of God. As John Stott describes, the the Athenians acknowledged in their altar inscription that they are ignorant of God, and Paul has been giving them evidence of their ignorance. Now he declares such ignorance to be culpable guilty of idolatry and punishable, therefore, by divine judgment. Their ignorance at the end of the day is treason against the true God of heaven and earth. And, and if you, I mean, that sounds harsh to us sometimes today, but if you stop and think about it, how disrespectful is it to remake God into whatever we want him to be? I mean, it reveals how small our view of God is and how impersonal we think he is. Imagine, imagine doing that to your mom. I mean, the one who gave you birth, the one who raised you and provided for all of your needs, who's up night late consoling you when you got sick or driving you around to all of your activities, always reminding you that you are loved. What would happen If on your wedding day, your mom shows up at the church and you don't acknowledge her as your mom, you don't even notice that she's there. More than that, you actually introduce some other lady as your mom and give her the credit for everything that your mom did for you. You praise her, you thank her, you celebrate her before everyone. Even worse, imagine you point to some statue of a cow and say, that's my mom. Isn't she wonderful? And you give the, the statue credit. Or you say, I, don't, I never had a mom. I don't believe in moms. Mom is it's just this construct for, for people. It's this weak coping mechanism. All the while, your mom's standing right there. If you do that, you're likely to see the unholy wrath of your mom come down. (laughs) When we do that to God, we come under his holy wrath because he is the author and giver of all life. He is the only true God. 
as he declares in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. In the past, Paul tells the Athenians that that God overlooked this idolatrous ignorance, which doesn't mean that he ignored it or didn't care uh, or that it wasn't worthy of his judgment. Rather, it means that in his forbearing mercy, he did not visit upon it the judgment it deserved. And it's not as though God was completely hidden. As Paul said when he preached Among the pagans in Lystra in chapter 14, God has never left himself without a witness. Rather, he explains later in Romans 1, for for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So it's not as though he's completely hidden himself. And now, the day has been set when God will visit judgment upon all who reject and distort Him, such that He calls everyone everywhere to repent of their ignorance of God and give their worship to the true and only God, from the Athenians in the first century to every man and woman today. And we can be confident that this is not an empty warning. This is not an idle threat. Because the one whom God appointed as judge for that final day, he has raised him from the dead. He, is, he lives and he is coming again. Jesus, the Savior, is also the judge. But in Paul's sermon, it's the mention of the resurrection that kind of brings his speech to a halt. That's the category breaker for a lot of his listeners. Uh, Luke tells us that some reacted with mockery. What a stupid idea. People don't come back to life again. Others with continued curiosity. We'd like to hear you again on this. But some, some responded in faith. They believed in Jesus and became followers of him, which is the whole point of Paul calling out their idolatry and warning them of the judgment to come. Because the same person who will judge the world in the end is the one who came the first time to save it. The miraculous event that assures us judgment is coming is at the same time the very power that saves us from the coming judgment, the resurrection of Jesus. God is not whoever or whatever we want Him to be. He is who He is and has revealed Himself to be through His Word and ultimately through His Son who lived, died, and rose again that we might know Him truly. True knowledge of God is only possible through His Son, Jesus. And that brings us to the three points of application. First, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Know that whatever it is you're looking for, 
to give you life and meaning and satisfaction or stability, hope, identity, whatever it is you're looking for for those things, it is but a shadow of the real thing if it isn't Jesus. He's the real thing. Everything else is an echo or a shadow. And we don't have the right to make God into whatever we want him to be. He's made himself known to us through Jesus. As Paul uh, declares to another Gentile audience in his letter to the Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the, bo- the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You cannot improve upon the real thing. There's no substitute. And there's no graduation, as though you start with Jesus and then you move on to something bigger and better. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. Whatever you're looking for, whatever your passions are driving you toward, hear in those longings the invitation of Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Second, stay grounded in the church. Stay grounded in a local church. Is the church relevant today? Well, it's certainly not perfect. We make a mess of things sometimes. And it can be boring. Not going to lie. Sometimes the, the, the ministry we're doing or the passages we're looking for, they just don't really seem to scratch the itch that I feel. But it's not all about me, is it? Jesus is the center, not me. And where else will we find his word of grace? In what other community has God taken up residence by his spirit in a special way? Where else is the word preached regularly and the sacraments administered? Who else has God called to shepherd the souls of his children? I mean, of course, there's missionaries and organizations preaching God's word, serving people on behalf of his kingdom uh, out there, like Paul in our passage, but they do so as an extension of local churches who partner together and send them out, like Paul in our passage, who was sent by the church in Antioch. So the church is not perfect, and you can make a list of all of the things that we mess up, and and I can probably double your list for you. 
But it is God's plan to make himself known in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And that makes it universally and eternally relevant. Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. He's called his church to warn the world, to bid them to flee to Christ for refuge, to be reconciled to God, redeemed by the blood of Christ in order not just to be protected from judgment in the end, but to be redeemed for what we were made to be and to do, to be children of God who enjoy and worship Him forever in love and in unending intimate relationship. And, and that, that brings us then to the third application. So, no, keep your eyes on Jesus, stay grounded in the church, but third, get out of the church, the, the building. Not, no. Get out of the church in order to make Christ known. If we want the unbelieving world around us to see the true and lasting relevance of the church and its message, you're not going to convince them by only participating in more church activities. Which I'm not saying don't participate in church activities. I'm not saying don't be involved in discipleship or fellowship or learning or, or serving or worship. Those are all part of the church's life and witness. And, and that kind of participation is a testimony to non-believers who might come and see. But most people in New England are not going to come and see. You have to go and tell. To love our neighbors as ourselves and bear witness to Christ in the power of the Spirit, what they're doing throughout the book of Acts. And we can learn some things in, from Paul in how we do that. If, if you're sharing with someone who grew up in the church or has a concept of, of God and Christianity, whether they left the faith or, or never were really that interested, you can pretty much just talk about Jesus with them. They know who you're talking about. But more and more today, someone with no church background, those, those nuns, no religious affiliation, who, who didn't grow up in the church and then leave it, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa grew up in the church and then left it, and they have no concept of these things. So if you're engaging with someone with no concept of the true God, you have to start where they are and then work your way toward Jesus. If Paul had said to the Athenians, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, that would have meant something different to virtually every person in that room. Because they didn't have a shared understanding of what God means. He had to start with the basic concept of God first, his nature and his plan, and in order to work his way toward Jesus. He was a master of what's called contextualization. So communicating the unchanging truth of the gospel in terms and categories that your audience can understand and identify with. So it's, it's really important to know your audience. But make sure that what you're offering them 
is not simply what they want to hear. The church will not retain its relevance simply by parroting the world or bending our beliefs and practices to what we think people are interested in or will find acceptable. For starters, we're not going to be able to compete uh, because the world will always be able to do worldly things better than the church. We're going to lose that competition. And second, the churches that tried that 100 years ago, this, this whole line, you know, the church must change or die, that's not a new line. That was the line of the late 1800s of the liberal Protestant, uh, liberal and, and uh, fundamentalist debates, meaning doctrine, not culture. And, and the line was the churches, uh, people don't believe these things anymore, so you've got to change the doctrine in order to stay relevant. And those churches that, that did that, that adjusted their doctrine, that left behind things like the resurrection, the virgin birth, miracles, anything like that, those are the churches a hundred years later that are condos and houses. They didn't stay relevant because they left the gospel behind. The church is most relevant to the world when what we proclaim is that which the world needs most and cannot get anywhere else. A true knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul offered in Athens. That is what we must continue offering today. The unadulterated gospel of Jesus. So may we be gripped by that gospel and accept no imitations. May we be changed by that gospel to become more and more like Christ. And may we hold out that gospel to others because we love them, because it's true, and because there's nothing better we can give them. And nothing they need more desperately than a true knowledge of God through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. Where would we be without you rending the heavens and coming down to make yourself known. We confess the temptation to continue making and serving gods of our own creation. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. And help us to move towards others with that true knowledge of Christ. May we do it with humility, not as those who figured everything out because we're so smart, but as sinners broken and cut off from you who you had mercy and grace on to reveal yourself in kindness. Lord, may we share that kindness with others. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.